You're listening to Sci-Fi TV Rewatch, episode 334. My name's Dave, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Wayne, as we continue our discussion of the YouTube science fiction series, Impulse. And we are in the waning stages of the Christmas holiday. And as I was saying to you before we went on the air, I forgot that every year BBC America runs a Doctor Who marathon. And, and, you know, like you, I watch an episode here and there. But, yeah, strangely comforting to have Who at Christmas, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, we kind of, my sons went back through and were watching the Christmas episodes again. It was kind of neat to see that. And, um, and some of the ones which you, I didn't, because they happened before I really started watching Doctor Who, I didn't realize were Christmas episodes in the first place. So it, it, was, it was, it was neat. It was really cool. Um, you kind of jump back in a little bit and see old episodes and you, it's been a while since I've really watched Doctor Who, I guess. And so you almost, I feel like a big rewatch of the whole thing might be coming up sometime. Maybe, maybe next summer. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, it's, but yeah, it's, it's cool to just be able to, you know, no matter when you turn the television on, you know, there's at least one good thing on. Yeah, and there's always the Twilight Zone marathon around this time as well, though I haven't caught any of those this time around. But again, it's nice to have that every year at this time. And obviously, when we were growing up, a film like The Wizard of Oz, it aired once a year, usually in February, if I recall correctly. And of course, now kids can own the DVD or you know stream it somewhere. Uh, it, it airs all different times of the year, so there's that mystical quality doesn't exist anymore. So, eh, you know, it is what it is. I guess we have to accept the progress. You know, yeah. And we've talked about this before. Uh, you, you, there's, there's certain like cultural, I guess, I don't want to say talking points, but just like things that everyone experienced at the same time. And there's hardly anything like that now. Game of Thrones, I guess, was kind of like that. But, but like you said, like when uh, The Wizard of Oz came on, it was, you know, because it's only like three stations. Well, everyone watched The Wizard of Oz when it came on every year. Or The Sound of Music was another one of those. Or Ben-Hur and The Ten Commandments. You know, they're just uh, things that when they came on TV, they were came on every year. Uh, at about the same time, everyone watched them, and we just really don't have that anymore. So much so, I think the other day in class, I mentioned something about the Wizard of Oz, and the kids looked at me like I was growing horns out of my head. I'm like, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? They're like, no. Yeah, so they haven't even seen the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, I know. Appalling. Yeah. And I always used to say, your parents should be brought up on child abuse charges for <laughs> yeah. that. Or at least child neglect, yeah. anyway. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so uh, other than the things we've just mentioned, uh, what are you watching at this point? Well, I just watched last night the final episode of The Mandalorian, and wow, it was great. That that series, um, you know, was just... It, it, I, I don't know if I was necessarily knocked out by the first episode, um, but... By the last one, I was pretty much knocked out. It was great. Um, you know, like a lot of people have mentioned, see a lot of buzz on it about how it's like the cinematic quality of the TV show, and certainly that is 
you know, the visual element of the show. It's absolutely stunning. Um, each one is kind of like a mini Star Wars movie. The 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 Western type hero. Uh, I, I think I, I read today something about the referring to him as kind of like a Clint Eastwood gunman type character. Uh, that, that's obviously really compelling and. You know, just like some really good elements. Like the, the, this episode has two uh, storm bike stormtroopers kind of sitting around waiting for orders. And so there's this extended scene where these two guys just kind of like are, you know, like talking to each other and, you know, they're bored and waiting to find out what happens next. And there's kind of like this joke. like So, you know, like the big joke how stormtroopers are terrible shots because of all the blaster shots that go off in all the star wars movies they never hit anybody so these two guys are like shooting at this rock trying to hit it and of course they're missing each time that shows them like shaking the gun and checking and everything so i mean there's little things like that that i think make it great but just uh, overall it's just a really super impressive series for me it's funny because like for me getting disney plus was a no-brainer as i talk to others in the real world, <laughs> who who have resisted getting Disney Plus, they they kind of I it, it, I couldn't I just didn't realize there were people out there who hadn't had it and didn't have it or were resistant to it or didn't want to get it. Um, but yeah, personally for me, I mean, not just with this series, but with all the other stuff. Uh, and um, my youngest especially has really loved Disney Plus because she gets to watch all these episodes of Good Luck Charlie that she you know watched when she was younger and everything. So. Um, yeah, overall, thumbs up for the Mandalorian. You talking to me? Yeah, you talking to me? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, as I've said, I don't have Disney Plus, and I don't have much desire to see any of the Star Wars stuff. But I did notice that virtually every headline for a review of the finale, I saw some of them refer to it as the perfect episode. So, I mean, certainly I'm happy for Star Wars fans. And and, uh, I did notice that the reviews, and again, I'm just going by the headlines, seemed to get better as the season went on. So that, uh, you know, certainly that's encouraging. A lot of series take, uh, you know, a few episodes to gain their footing and the characters to develop. So, uh, yeah, cool. Um, Now, for me, I finished the first season of His Dark Materials, and as expected, it was just really great. Just love this this series. And and one of the things that I thought about as I was watching it at various points, in in a similar vein to The Librarians, it's a series that you can watch with your family. Now, granted, Younger children might find some of it a bit dark and a bit disturbing, but for the most part, uh, you know, there's there's no sex, there's not all that much violence, and, and what there is isn't really gruesome, and, and I get that maybe some of the younger children wouldn't like the fact that, that once in a while one of the cute little animals or cute big animals uh, meets its demise, but, but for the most part, uh, you know, it, it can be watched with the family and you know there aren't all that many shows out there that that we can say that about but the other show that i picked up as season two dropped the day after christmas is a netflix psychological thriller called you and i believe it originally season one aired on 
Lifetime, maybe, and then, you know, it did okay there, and once it hit Netflix, it exploded. So season two, it picks up on the main character, this guy Joe, who's now changed his name to Will for a reason that I don't want to spoil for the viewer, but the main character develops these relationships with women and then as an ex-girlfriend who resurfaces points out murder seems to follow you <laughs> and without going into too many of the details there are 10 episode seasons it's it's really good now you might find a problem with the voiceovers but they're an integral part of the narrative device because we hear that as he's conversing with a character and it's one of those things that this is what i want to say but of course i can't say it so so then i'll say what you know what what i need to say robin lord taylor from gotham is in season two and while he's not a main character he's certainly an important character but one of the main characters the girlfriend of this episode is played by victoria pedretti who we know as nell from the haunting of hill house okay so uh you know if you're into that sort of thing it's it's really a creepy show but it's just so compelling and apparently it's one of those shows that on netflix has just exploded and while netflix rarely reveals numbers uh it's from everything i've read it's one of their biggest shows so uh if you're into that sort of thing it's called you and currently on netflix cool all right, so let's get to the real topic, Impulse Episode 5 of Season 1, The Eagle and the Bee, written by Matt Pitts, who wrote six episodes of Fringe, 11 episodes of Revolution, so he certainly worked in the genre, directed by Helen Shaver, who, again, is a prominent director in the genre field, directed six episodes of Vikings, a few of Orphan Black, Travelers, Revolution, And she's going to direct some of the episodes of the upcoming Snowpiercer series that's uh, still waiting in the wings. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Snowpiercer. Yeah, I love that movie. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, you know, waiting on that, that's, I believe, going to air on TNT, but uh, still no release date. So, anyway, all right. Opening scene, and I love when they bookend an episode and that's certainly what they do here with sure. Nikolai who opens the episode and ends the episode and we see him in his motel room that omnipresent goldfish in a bowl and and again I think we have to consider that he sees himself as this goldfish in a bowl from which he cannot escape and He's injecting himself in the chest, and and Fred brings that up in his feedback, so you know we might as well speculate at this point. We see all sorts of scarring on his yeah. chest, which I assume to mean he's injected himself pretty frequently, and he's got the little case, and you know we've seen this kind of deal before, the the little case, and it holds several uh, injections to be right. used. At, well, we usually at later see points. it like as a you know a heroin addict. Um, and their little doctor's kit. But, you know, this guy is not taking this drug or whatever he's injecting. He's not doing it rec- recreationally. Exactly. And guy shows up, gives him some kind of dossier and a supply of factor, which is what apparently they're calling uh, this serum that he injects. 
And again, you know, we, we've run across this in time travel series, certainly dark, that traveling through time eventually takes a physical toll on one's body. So I, I guess we have to wonder whether teleporting eventually takes a toll on the body and whether factor is, is something that keeps your, your cellular structure in place. Well, my thought is the factor is something that pre- you know, like something that prevents him from teleporting. Maybe, I, but I then know. why? But then why would he want to take it? I well, I exactly that's the question. So I, I mean, I don't know. That is wild speculation um, right now. Um, but yeah, the the scarring or was it? You know, like it, it kind of looked like it could be like branding too. Like if he had. Instead of like tattoos, people brand their skin. But I mean, there, there was definitely some some skin trauma that had occurred on, on Nikolai's chest there, and it's right where he he it did inject him. So probably the best bet is that's uh, scarring. And um, but the you know what what this is for, we can't tell. But it's it's definitely what we see from Nikolai in the scene is that. You know, whereas before we see him as being kind of the guy in control, you know, we see here that he's not the guy in charge. He's basically a hitman, and he's ordered around. And like you said, like I, I like the the fish, goldfish in the bowl because that is, you know, like, like you said, a good symbol of probably how he sees himself. He wants to escape, he wants to get out, but he finds this obviously impossible as the people who have this this she um is able to contact him from his what it seems like his go bag and they contact him as soon as he gets to his go bag so you know it seems like they totally have tabs of where he is and where he's going and what he's doing and and he knows it and knows he can't escape so um so he's got to do this one more thing which as you said is is seems to be directed towards henry right i mean everybody's got a boss and and that gets established in this episode as you said and it appears to be a female boss but again she just could be the contact we'll uh you know have to wait and see if we learn any more details surrounding that but in, in terms of the scarring we also have to go back to what dominic said about cutting him open and and the fear that they would cut his son open so i guess it could also be related to that depending on how long uh you know nikolai has been in and i'm making air quotes the program um now we also see the guy that comes to meet him in his motel room dead on the floor blood everywhere so uh, obviously nikolai took care of that and again as you said clearly he's being kept tabs on so it's probably not going to take his boss long to figure out that you know his, his contact has now been killed by nikolai yeah well, right, i'm sure so, they know that right away and you know, yeah and when he picks up the phone at the end she's just like what are you doing you know, yeah <laughs> you know this isn't going to work out yeah so um i just went through and again you know i, I I'm, I'm torn between the wild speculation and Actually, no, I'm not even going to say it. I was going to say that if this turned into some kind of time travel thing, that, you know, oh, the she on the phone is actually Henry. But as I was, as that thought crossed my mind, I'm like, well, that's preposterous. Because then if it were Henry, she would know that 
she's in rest in New York and there wouldn't be this, oh, we just got some kind of blip on the radar out of this place in New York. Why don't you go, you know, like, so. But I, when I first heard the she, I'm like, oh, it's a she, who's, who's the she? And obviously, I mean, that's a big mystery now who it is. But I mean, like, that's just stupid for me to say it's Henry. So, Well, I mean, but outside of the Umbrella Academy and number five, who is able to combine teleportation with time travel, you know, I don't know another example that we've run across in, in genre, literature, film, or television, but that doesn't mean it's not out right. there. So, yeah, yeah you know, once I, you open the door, you know, but, right. but no. Right. But it's clearly, right. uh, it's, well, the only thing is that I'm thinking, all right, so Dave really wanted to watch this. He was really keen on impulse, and Dave loves time travel stuff. So that's that's kind of like me overthinking this whole thing, obviously, you know. Like, or, or are you? Or am mm. I, right? Yeah, <laughs> yes, so. I'm pretty sure well, I am. <laughs> right. Well, now you mentioned a couple details about Nikolai's final scene. So, uh, and that he answers that cell phone and it's the woman th- that we've been talking about. But she also tells him they've detected gravitational shifts and you know how rare this is. So that I think goes back to our speculation last week that somebody has instrumentation somewhere. They know when somebody teleports and we can assume at this point they have an eye on teleporters, even though it it seems as if every time we turn around, there's somebody that can teleport. Uh, Obviously, that doesn't seem to be the case. He's apparently indebted to her. We don't know why yet. It seems it probably goes beyond the factor supply. Although she tells him, carry out this one last assignment and we'll give you enough to last a year. And then, as you said, his job is to go to Reston. And obviously, we know that Henry has been discovered at this point. Right. So. Which is going to make all her problems up to this point seem pretty small potatoes, I think. Yeah. Now, the the main story revolves with Henry at her childhood home. And, and one of the things that comes to mind for me, and Fred has alluded to this in several of his feedbacks, and, and of course, you and I have talked about it on numerous occasions, Henry's general attitude and demeanor and the way she treats other people. And obviously, she is the hero, albeit an anti-hero at this point. The Jessica Jones comparison comes to mind, though, to be fair, Jessica Jones' surly attitude, which, you know, certainly we can see in Henry, doesn't usually get in the way of her helping somebody that needs her help. And at this point, it's all about Henry. Right. And while we could argue, well, Jess is older, you know, we we see little snippets of Jess as a teenager that maybe Henry needs to grow into this role. So, you know, again, I, I just came to mind and I think it's a reasonable comparison to make. But, you know, we see her back in the closet looking at the door markings and she emerges from the closet and starts walking around the house. And immediately we start noticing things like I there might have been a cigarette burning in an ashtray. The TV is clearly on and she starts snooping around when an older woman finally confronts her with a shotgun. It's like the bears are home, Goldilocks. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) And she manages to leave the house uh, and uh, 
was interesting to see that she did not teleport. So did she sense that this woman, though she was holding a shotgun, wasn't really a threat? I guess. I don't know. Well, and and that shoots right in the foot my thought from you know last week or two maybe two weeks so that that um Henry was acquiring some manner of control yes. over this. Um because we see when she, she goes to the closet it seems like she's able to kind of will herself back to her room, but apparently that is not a thing because because um, you'd think she would right away, she would just transport back if she was um, able to control it. And this, that doesn't seem to be the case at all because she has to call some random dude to pick her up. Right. You, you, you had a good point here about it being kind of all about Henry. And we see here like two sides of her because, yeah, she is very kind with Dippy. Right, she um, helps her get cleaned up. She does her nails. These are things we couldn't really imagine Henry doing at all. But on the other hand, she does all of this with, under the pretense that Dippy's daughter is going to come up to visit her. And like, really, you just have to take one look around the house to know no one's visited this lady in a long time. So, you know, Henry, again, she is a teenager. She's probably just not attuned to things like this. But telling her that her daughter was coming was downright cruel. Yes. Yes. And I think she says she hasn't seen her daughter in seven years. And the excitement coming from this woman who was rather surly in her own right. And again, I guess we can understand she lives alone, probably doesn't have too much human contact and and the the place is a mess because she just apparently doesn't care but when henry mentions that lizzie her daughter you know hired her to come in and clean up suddenly she's going to take a shower and, and again it was a great scene when she comes down and she tells henry see i clean up pretty pretty good don't i but as you said it really was downright cruel now does henry recognize how cruel it really is because of her age maybe not but still and this is a difficult one that she is 16 and you know as we discussed a number of years ago at school in a you know meeting we had to go to the brain doesn't fully develop till 25 which obviously put some of our younger colleagues at risk for uh, an inordinate amount of teasing which uh you know we took advantage of i yeah think i can say but but you know how much do we excuse that kind of behavior on the other hand she's grasping at clues and clearly there are clues in this house so you know you know we get that but the other thing and and we talked about her cruelty directed towards towns in an earlier episode towns is her her one of her first calls it's and, she is his she is the first call he is right and i think she calls jenna later interestingly both go to voicemail which again i'm certainly no uh, cell phone expert i mean i've had a smartphone for a while now but it goes to voicemail immediately if you have it turned off right because it, it didn't seem like rang and rang and rang and they looked at their phone oh it's henry i'm not taking this call but then 
it wasn't coming from Henry. It was coming from Dippy's landline. So are teenagers going to look at a number? Oh, I don't know that number. I'm not going to answer it. Yeah. Or are they teenagers? It's like, oh, I wonder who this is (laughs) because they haven't had time to, you know, develop that wariness. Yeah. But I think the former, I think most people nowadays, because of especially uh, robocalls and, you know, uh, phone solicitations that most people, if you see a number you don't recognize, they immediately, you know, hit the, uh, you know, swipe down or whatever you do to to deny the call and not take it. So I, I would think that that would be the case here, that they just see a number they're unfamiliar with, so they, so they immediately boom right. to go to voicemail. But the funny thing yeah. is that they have voicemails because out of my four children, only one of them has even set up his voicemail uh, for his phone. And on that one is my oldest son, and he still has the voicemail he set up when he was in middle school, like in sixth grade, which is hilarious to call now because you call his, cell, his voicemail and you get this, you know, six-year-old voice coming, uh, six, sixth grade voice coming out of it. So, um, so yeah, uh, the, the kids don't really check the voicemail, so... All right. Well, Henry does learn a lot at this house and and she goes back into the storage closet to look around. And and that's when she has that flashback to a childhood incident in which her father puts her in the closet. And and last time I know I speculated, well, why would a child hide in the closet? Perhaps to get away from parents arguing, but that doesn't seem the case. He puts her in the closet it seems as a safe space and we hear this high pitched sound and we don't necessarily get an answer to what it is, but what occurs to me at this point, and and when I say that, obviously everybody knows I've seen all two seasons of impulse. So I'm really kind of remembering what I thought at the time. And, you know, we have that, recognition of the high-pitched sound with the little interrupter that Nikolai has or had and you know could it be something associated with with that so you know that certainly comes out but then you know once Dippy comes down and, and she makes that sarcastic comment about nice job cleaning because we look around and she really didn't clean anything now as you said she does do Dippy's nails for her and on the one hand, do we look at that as altruism or do we look at it as another chance to pry information out of Dippy? Because that's really what happens, that she does learn that Dippy rented out this house to a young couple with a daughter, obviously Henry. And the piece of information that the husband was paranoid schizophrenic. Now, does Dippy know that he was actually designated that by a psychiatrist or is that just one of those terms that she's throwing around because the guy, his behavior was very erratic. I mean, we don't know at this point. Well, you know, like a couple of things, like uh, going back to the sound, uh, you know, I, obviously I thought the, the same thing that, Oh, that's sounds like the, whatever they did. Like when Dominic was in the lab that they, used to prevent him from going anywhere and actually had to put, well, I don't know, whatever it was. He ended up putting the 
his earphones over Tristan's ears in, instead of his own. And, and I, the, um, the, this hiding in the closet seemed to be, again, like Dominic they, and Tristan, they had this game where when, you know, when the bad guys come, they had this game for escape or whatever. In this case, it seems like kind of like a, a you know, turning a serious situation to a game for a kid, you know, Oh, we're going to play hide and seek and everything. So, so, so yeah. And, and I, like I said, I think the, I, I thought it was kind of touching the, the scene where she helps Dippy do her nails, you know? So I think that moment there was an altruistic type moment. Um, though again, overall, and like you said, she's a teenager, um, and so overall, I, 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 like like I said, I, I don't know if she really sees what she's doing as being particularly cruel. I, you know, again, sixteen-year-olds often have difficulty, uh, you know, entering the other another person's mind and seeing what they see and understanding. But you know, like I said, an adult would totally look around and know that this lady's hasn't had visitors and certainly her daughter doesn't as surprised as she sounds when, when Henry says, Oh, Lizzie's on her way. And, and she's very surprised by that. So right there, um, Henry should have realized what's going on and, and continuing up the farce is, was, you know, you know, pretty cruel. But again, I don't think she was trying to be cruel. She's just like, like you said, she's, she's kind of doing herself and, and trying to, to get out of a situation that she's in and everything. Sometimes you have to be cruel to be kind, you know? Yeah, just ask uh, Nick Lowe. Dude, I set you up. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's early. We're, we're, we're doing another recording at 10 a.m. on a Monday. Yeah. And it's uh, a rainy day. But, you know, Henry, I guess, realizes that she's gotten all the information about her past that she's going to get out of Dippy. She goes upstairs instead of using the landline right there to make a phone call. And of course we know she's trying to execute an exit plan and, and calls that guy that, that comes picks her up. And of course, Dippy overhears the phone call. And when she says, Lizzie's not coming, is she? And, And just that, crestfallen look on her face and tells henry to leave and we get that final scene of this storyline that we've seen many times henry walking alone at night along a deserted road and Mm -hmm. again i think it just encapsulates the fact that she is so alone in the life she is now really facing and while we know there are others like her out there, that's really little comfort. And should she find that out, it's probably going to provide little comfort as well. But car pulls up, picks her up. She obviously knows this guy because she certainly doesn't feel threatened. Tells him, take me home as if he should know where home is. He doesn't even know where Reston is. And she says, uh, right. just, I'll tell you where. So um, anything else about Henry's story that, that you want to add before we move on? Uh, I don't think so. I just want to put my opposition out there to the man bun. Um, I don't agree with it. don't like it, but, you know. The, so... I feel like my first impressions of this character, though he is like, you know, he does show up out of nowhere to 
to pick her up. Um, but yeah, I just can't get by. I can't get past the hair. Okay. I'm just going to say this. Maybe it's a, a very minuscule spoiler. I think you'll get over it. I'll, I'll just say that. Uh, And I I won't say why, but, uh, and the other story that I find interesting in this episode is the one with Jenna and Zach, because it does seem to be in isolation to Henry's story. And, And of course, Jenna has had a lot to cope with knowing what she knows about Henry. Look, Jenna's got a lot to cope with because this, other woman and her teenage daughter have moved into my house and my life has changed radically just from that aspect. So teleporting aside, but she confronts towns about Henry since Henry seems to be missing. And again, we've talked about Jenna, despite Henry's surly attitude, she, she does care about Henry and, and does worry Towns, not so much, and and we understand that. He was rejected, and, um, you know, before anything can develop there, one of the guys from Clay's team asks her out that night, and, and she agrees. And the little bit we see of Zach at this point, he seems to be the anti-Clay. I was right about to say that. You know, he, he really... <laughs> is stumbling to get the words out and, and, you know, you can sense that fear of rejection. And, and certainly we know Henry is all about rejecting people that get too close to her. We go back to the incident in the bathroom when Henry teleports and the bathroom explodes and she has the wherewithal to, you know, make it look like a prank from the rival school. So, Jenna, Zach, and some others are going inside the rival school to plant a prank. And I don't know if you remember the one that our seniors did that one year where right outside the main entrance at the parking lot, they had, I don't know, hundreds of cups. Yeah. Although I think they had goldfish in them, if I recall correctly. Uh, So you couldn't really. uh, Yeah. You couldn't really just step on them, at least not with a clear conscience. I guess some of the sociopaths on the uh, faculty staff would have done it anyway but uh, <laughs> anyway patty we don't see patty a lot but she always cracks me up well you know zach will make a good starter boyfriend you know <laughs> you, you 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 sample them and then you know you, you you throw the rest away and and move on and she does challenge jenna about not having any boyfriends and you know, again, I think you and I are, you know, fairly well versed in teenage relationships and how they develop and come and go. And you know, I mean, a sixteen-year-old girl, as attractive as she is, uh, it seems unlikely she wouldn't have had a boyfriend at this point or done a little bit of dating. But uh, you know, again, who but, knows? I mean, her mom was sick, right? And and you know that may have impacted. You know, her well, and, and desire. Jenna's smart, so she's probably you know really focuses on her academics and probably you know, might not might see a silly boyfriend relationship as you know something she's not really interested. In. But of course, you know her going along with this whole thing, she um, realizes at least the social level, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Right. right. I'm supposed to be going out with boys. I'm supposed to be doing 
like silly pranks on our rival schools. Um, I'm supposed to just randomly give a guy a hand job as we are hiding from the security, you know, yeah, normal teenage stuff. Well, right. And, you know, they're hiding in, in the classroom and, and obviously they're hugging each other. We, we could say, well, it's an enclosed space. They probably didn't have to hug each other. They, I guess both took it as an opportunity. But but he seems as tentative as, as she does at the beginning. And though his hand does go under her shirt rather quickly, she seems to go with the flow and as you said unbuckles his pants and and of course i think we're a little bit surprised when he tells her they can stop because we assumed he was one of clay's friends and again kind of refreshing that he he is not like clay that he senses she's not into it so they stop and yeah of course later at the bowling alley patty's got to know so how far'd you go right (sighs) well yeah, um, yeah. Like you said, the the anti clay. There's that moment there when they start, and obviously, there's two ways this can go. We've seen this before. This could go badly wrong, like it did for Henry. But we see that a that Zach is pretty respectful, and b that Jenna wants to. Well, at least thinks she wants to, or thinks this is what I'm supposed to do because. And I like how you bring up the bowling alley, because in the bowling alley, she sees two women kissing, and she seems to be a lot more interested in that than she is in anything with Zach. Yes. So, you know, so, you know I, I think, obviously, they're, I, they're pretty much beating us over the head with that she's in the girls, but she also knows what she's supposed to be doing, which is expected of her. Um, well, she's probably just like really kind of unsure right now of her sexuality and, and you know, what she starts with Zach, she clearly, as, as you said, she's not really into it. She starts, you know, you know, touching him and stuff, but, uh, soon loses enthusiasm, which, which, uh, Zach picks up on. And so like, again, but instead of clay, instead of clay, who, violently pushes himself onto her he says hey you know we we can stop that's you know and everything so right right but then i think we have to ask the larger question what does this scene have to do with henry and teleportation and things like that and i i guess one answer because he's on clay's team we we have that clay problem hovering in the background whether or not he's going to eventually remember what actually happened of course as we said at the time even if he remembers what happened who's going to believe him so there is that but it's also the expectation thing that that jenna is acting in a way as you said that these are expectations that she feels right or wrong and that well maybe there's another choice out there and and of course henry's trying to learn about her choices and expectations are 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 still in the background so so we'll see um yeah you know the other interesting thing well i'm sorry before we move on i just want to say like you know one thing is that you know it, it does call then into question like is her role is kind of henry's kind of ride or die you know if she 
is questioning or experimenting with her sexuality is is there an element of like physical attraction for Jenna to Henry? And I think that might be kind of facile, and and I don't you know I, I I don't know how I'd feel if they go that way with it because I think the relationship between Jenna and and Henry is more than just some you know sexual attraction. I think they they are more like sisters and everything, um, but. You know, it does open up that that is a possibility, right? Well, I'll just say you're going to get an answer one way or the other, and, and we'll okay. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. But but no, I know what you're saying, and I think from a narrative perspective, I'm not sure how much sense that would make, and so yeah, let's just leave it at that. And Cleo has a new job, and and again. We've talked about Cleo and the difficulty she's had raising Henry and the mistakes she's made and, you know, the relationship between mother and daughter, you know, is dicey at best. And, you know, I think even in the best of worlds, teenage girls and their mothers go through periods where it's difficult just because you're my mother and I'm a teenage girl. So, she gets up early, wants an early start at the dealership. Thomas is clearly not happy that she's working for Bill, but you know he knows Bill Boone. He's been around for more than just a few weeks or a few months. That said, he's willing to support her decision because I think we really see that he does care about her and and that you know, like his daughter Jenna, he, he is a good guy. And that scene where she's on the car lot trying to sell a car and on the one hand i love that dude's reaction because that's so me just put my hand up stop i'm walking away (laughs) you know yeah no (laughs) uh and fine that's her first day something's not clicking and she runs into lucas and tells him she's trying to sell a car that has 150,000 miles on it. I mean, unless you're selling that car for like a hundred bucks, like I, I am, who's going to buy a freaking car with 150,000 miles on it? You know, like no well, way. It's a, it's a Honda. I don't know. Yeah, if it's a Honda still, or man. <laughs> I know. Um, but, you know, she tells Lucas that she memorized the whole manual and we can tell Lucas doesn't want to, talk to her at this point and it's nothing about her it's he's got other things on his mind obviously but he tells her that his father says you sell cars with feelings not numbers and that just clicks with cleo and it goes back to cleo as a waitress and why she's such a good waitress is because she does know people and that she does anticipate what somebody might need and I think people in a restaurant generally appreciate a waiter or a waitress that that does anticipate those things. Her next customer comes in, you know, we learn later in the episode that she sells her first car. So whether it's to this woman, we don't know, but approaches it from that emotional standpoint, makes that connection mother to mother. And once the woman says, well, can I test drive it? Boom. Even if even if she doesn't sell it, we know she's made progress, and and she knows she's made progress. Now, again, right. well, she's got a great point there. Like, especially young parents out there, 
you got to go with the leather seats, 100%. Do not get cloth seats. Leather seats, Clio's 100% right. The vomit just wipes right off of the leather seats. <laughs> it's going to be in those cloth seats forever. So just that's a little tip from your Aunt Cleo there. And again, asking why is this scene important to the overall episode and the overall arc, I think it establishes that Cleo has found a job that maybe she will be good at as well, but it's a step up, certainly financially, certainly from a status standpoint, which doesn't really seem to bother Henry one way or the other. But I think it establishes that well, maybe we're going to stay in Reston for a while because I found a good job that maybe will lead somewhere. Uh, of course, the the meeting with Lucas, and we know that he's got something else on his mind as well, and, and we'll talk about that in a second. So they're not going to be able to run or they won't want to run. Now, Henry might want to run, but yeah mom you know it's someone's gonna have to run (laughs) establishing roots at this point so um now you know the other thing is the boone family and we kind of see that split into two sections lucas meeting his mother and and this is the first time we've met mom and i don't know about you dude but she's a piece of work and and then bill (laughs) Uh, yeah and his relationship with the millers because jeremiah comes to him and and tells him the story of the eagle and the bee which is of course the title of the episode and as bill's listening to the story i i guess this is supposed to be a metaphor for their business relationship and and as bill says i hope yeah. i'm not the the eagle in this story so is uh, he jeremiah yeah, I, I know that. But is Jeremiah threatening? <laughs> you missed the point him? of the story. <laughs> yeah. So, why is Jeremiah telling him this? Does he suspect yeah. Bill? Oh yeah. Of, oh yeah, okay. for sure. He must, right? And and just as Bill suspects Jeremiah with what happened to Clay, and and they both talking about well, what happened to my son. Uh, and it's clear, like, I mean, this conversation is just loaded with subtext because what they're really saying is, you did this to my son. And each man is saying that to the other. And, of course, each man is saying, you know, I really didn't do this to your son. I guess we question whether Bill sent Lucas to kill Amos or whether you know i think probably that lucas just took it on his own kind of prerogative to do it so bill has that level of deniability can say i don't know what happened to your son i'm sorry he's dead but i didn't do it and and the same way uh jeremiah can honestly say because he didn't that i had nothing to do with what happened to your son but both suspects the other did Right. I mean, the question, though, becomes, why was Amos in Reston in the first place? And and neither man knows, of course. There's obviously a certain irony to the fact that he dies from a fentanyl overdose, because that's what they're manufacturing up at the farm. But Jeremiah's not quite buying that, because as he points out, that was an agreement that we made with ourselves we're not going to use the product that we're selling. 
Now, that said, again, that's like somebody that owns a bar saying, well, I'm not going to drink. Stuff happens. I mean, you just never know. People are people. But but as you say, the subtext is unmistakable here that there's suspicion. But then he asks Bill to help get the body released for burial because I guess according to the Mennonite religion, it has to be buried within three days, which then leads to that meeting between Hulche and what turned out to be two DEA agents who are working undercover. And, dude, I, I know you had to feel the same way. They tell her to step down. They're not worried about the murder. And we're thinking like, oh, yeah, she's going to step down. <laughs> I don't think so, yeah, DEA right. agents. <laughs> um, yeah. But they've done their homework on her and – you know, we talked about that young black man that she sees that's, you know, this this vision, hallucination, whatever. Ortez Mackey, who was 19, and I think that's a reasonable deduction to uh, make. Now, we don't know any more background right. about it, but uh, but the other thing. We, right. we've so I, I had about- speculated that he was they were related in some way, some kind of family me- member, but at the it, it seems to not be the case that, it, but it was a young man. Uh, we, uh, it seems that it was some kind of police involved shooting where Anna uh, shot this young man and killed him and now feels a tremendous amount of guilt about it. Right. Now, the sheriff wants to know why the Miller case is still open and, you know, Hall Chase, because we don't know who did it, close the case, end of story. Of course, we we know that's not likely to happen. But the other thing, we see that scene where Amos Miller's body is released. Hulche doesn't look pleased, and of course we know why, but why does she utter the words, I'm sorry, as the Millers drive away? Is she sorry that she can't tell the Millers who really killed their son? Is she sorry about what happened, whatever it is, with Ortez Mackey? Uh, I love, you know, the fact that it's so ambiguous at this point, but I I don't know. You got any theories on that? Well, I I would say maybe a combination of the two, you know, like kind of, I'm sorry, I I didn't find who killed your son, but also she once again sees uh, Ortez. And so she's probably saying sorry to him as well. So it's a very interesting character. Um, You know, like there are a lot of cliche elements of, and a Hulche's cop with a conscience character, the you know fighting against the corruption of of the police force, but but there's obviously more to her than that, and and uh, we, we we and we I like how they only give us a little bit at, at a time of her, you know, like they're, they're we're not getting super huge reveals, we're just getting a little bit and uh, you know more about what she's like and what her mind and, and what's going on with her, and that's kind of cool to see that character develop well yeah and talking about what's going on with her i I like the fact that the bowling alley has kind of become the the central location for meetings of all sorts and she overhears that cleo is working for bill boone and you know like you you mentioned about jenna being sort of fixated on the two girls together halche's sort of you know fixated learning that cleo works for bill boone and i'm thinking like well why what does that have to do with any what do you think cleo killed 
Jeremiah's son. I mean, so what that she's working for Bill Boone? I mean, he's probably the biggest business in Reston. So I'm not sure why that gets her attention. I mean, to this point, you know, I mean, Henry, you know, she is a vandal, nothing more. What else does she have to be suspicious of? So I don't know, uh, again, from something that makes sense, unless we're looking at Hulche as somebody who is really having a difficult time staying on point. Is she beginning to lose focus? And and I'll just, I guess, word it like that. I don't want to say she's slipping into madness or anything like that. But again, when you start hallucinating individuals, I think we certainly have to consider that. Right. But. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like seeing dead people is not good. Uh uh, unless you're in an M. Night Shyamalan movie, then it's okay. But uh, yeah, there you uh, go. <laughs> uh, but but yeah, I, you know, I don't know about slipping in the madness or, or just. I mean, she's obviously has to be very frustrated with what's going on in Reston, and and she understands that. I mean, it, we know that the her the I guess the police chief. I don't know the whatever that dude is is corrupt as all get out she doesn't have necessarily that information that we have but she obviously must suspect it because this guy is coming up with fake you know witnesses and and false accusations and uh you know killing cases before they're solved and things like that so she knows something's going on here right and you know that that kind of leads us into Lucas and his mother, and, and of course we we learn the details surrounding Amos Miller's murder, and it is of course Lucas. The question is whether or not Bill puts him up to it, because we first see Lucas listening to these self help tapes when Bill startles him, and of course we don't know an answer at that point. So why does Lucas go to visit his mother, who's remarried to a minister? We don't know what happened between mother and father, why they got a divorce. I mean, again, we've seen Bill have sex with a woman who's apparently single herself. We talked about this last week. So, uh, you know, did Bill have an affair? I mean, is it the mother? Because it, it does turn out that, the mother hasn't gone to see her son in the hospital and Lucas confronts her about that. And I'm not sure, you know, he really gets a a satisfactory answer. Well, I haven't seen you for months and, and that's what you have to say. It's like, what does one have to do with the other? Right. Yeah, exactly. And the, and the answer is nothing. And you know, their relationship is, you know, strained. I mean, we don't know how long, She's been gone. But the other thing that I find interesting, because we see him listening to those self-help tapes, and then he stays for lunch, and and her husband, the minister, seems cool. He recognizes Lucas, says, hey, you're great timing. Sit down and have lunch with us. And, of course, these people are, are so condescending once they find out that, no, he's not actually going to college. That's not what he's studying. But husband tells lucas about the sermon he gave and mom immediately he doesn't want to hear about religion 
And Lucas says he does. So is it too soon for Lucas to search for something to assuage the guilt that he perhaps feels over killing Amos Miller? Yeah. Well, it's funny because with Lucas's whole, especially this episode, um, you know, listening to the self-help, going to his mom, uh, bumming a cigarette from Cleo, you know, he just seems like he's reaching out and, and just like that he's going through something. We don't know what it is until the very end when we say, oh, he personally killed Amos. And he obviously is struggling with that. So he's maybe not like what his dad so much. We, you know, I, I, I get that we've seen Bill has not been 100% the bad guy, right? But like I said, I, I think he is, like that he is very um, underneath pretty cold-blooded. Lucas does not seem to be cold-blooded, and he's kind of trying to reach out to anyone struggling to stay above water as he's really kind of spiraling out of control. I know I'm mixing metaphors there, but, you know, whatever. And, and he, he certainly gets zero help from mom. And uh, again, this is why, as I said last week, Dave, I should not stay away from the speculation and trying to predict because I said that, you know, that something tragic happened with mom. And it really didn't. Mom is living the good life. They have a super posh house um, and everything. So, but yeah, he gets no, you know, he gets no love or support from, from mom. Uh, he does kind of get a little bit from Cleo. And it's funny how, you know, Cleo thanks him for the advice he gave, gives him a hug. And as Cleo is hugging him, which I think, I, I didn't know if that was, you know, like a maternal hug or not. Uh, it seemed like it was. But this is where he has the flashback to killing Amos, which is a weird thing to think when someone else is hugging you. But but yeah, I, I think we find a little bit more sympathy for Lucas, despite f- discovering that he's killed someone, which is obviously horrible. I guess he feels real bad about it, so maybe he's not such a bad guy. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think it turns out from his perspective to be a maternal hug and something he needs and something that really, as you say, leads him to you know, the vision of what he's done. I think for her, it's a colleague, you know, you're somebody that works here as well. Your dad hired me, you gave me great advice and, and I just want to thank you. So regardless of how we interpret it, it has, I think, positive meaning for both characters. So, uh, all right. Anything else before we listen to Fred's feedback? No, I don't think so. Nope. Okay. All right, well, let's hear what Fred has to say this week, and we will be right back. Hello, Dave and Wayne. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for Impulse Season 1, Episode 5. Why this music in the background? Well, this is my 100th feedback for sci-fi tv rewatch i think a reason for a little celebration and it is actually the 97th audio feedback because the first three were just written feedbacks 
And these 100 also include one time as a guest for episode 2 of Pamela Grove, which was one of my requests as a Patreon. And it also includes my visit to your studio, Dave, which was a nice experience. And I loved to hear that you still enjoying my Queen Milamina mints. Obviously, Mary didn't eat them all. First remark I want to make is that it's nice that there is another one that gives feedback to your podcast. Hello, Richard. I really advise to watch Dark, though. You were somewhat reluctant, but it's actually the best series Dave and Wayne did as far as I'm involved in the last 100 episodes. If you like genre, if you like time travel, if you like Sherlock Holmesy puzzles, you really should watch that show. And if it's an indication, if you look at my feedback for Dave and Wayne for this series of impulse, they're around 4-5 minutes. And in dark, I had a lot of trouble to keep it below 10 minutes. Furthermore, on the 20th of December, a article of Entertainment Insider published the 57 original Netflix series ranked. And which series is on one? Well, you can imagine that is dark. I will post a link on the Facebook page. Next topic is that I was so busy the last two weeks with all kinds of episodes of Star Trek and Marvel Runaways and His Dark Materials and of course Impulse and The Expanse that I didn't find the time to listen to your podcast. So it's just recently that I listened to podcast about episode 1 and 2. And I discovered that some of the feedback I gave last time, so for episode 4, you actually already discussed in episode 2. So this nicely proves why I need your podcast. And it also proved that I missed some stuff. So I didn't really get it that Bill Boone himself also was involved in drug trafficking. I had the impression only his son Lucas was. But okay. First I want to correct a little mistake I made last week. Bill Boone's hooker is not a hooker. Well, perhaps she is. But she obviously is Iris, a colleague of Cleo, a waitress in the restaurant. And whether he paid her for sex or he just had sex and supported her with some money, well, okay. But thank you for pointing it out. I didn't see it was Iris. At the end of the episode, we see her back in that bar and she is, well, not impressed by the fact that Cleo has a job at Bill Boone, where she says, which man doesn't like a good Cinderella story? Can imagine that she is quite unsatisfied with Cleo doing double shifts in the restaurant and perhaps even losing Bill Boone as her, well, lover, money supplier, whatever. I will call this the play nice episode because when you see bill boone talking to jeremiah who just lost his son it was a very civilized and empathic almost conversation 
And when we later see Lucas at the house of his mother, he is also well behaved. And when we then see Cleo selling cars after Lucas's tip, she plays the emotions of this woman and plays nice. And when we see Henry in the house of the old woman with lung cancer, she also plays nice. And actually, I think none of them is really nice. Or at least it turns out to something less nice. Oh, and I forget Bill being nice to his son Clay, who gets his father's room downstairs, fully furnished, etc. And he just sends his father out. And Jenna plays nice, going along with the big water cup joke of Zack. And afterwards with more. But Zack, fortunately, is not a a-hole as Clay. We get a lot of new facts. One is that Cleo with Henry has lived indeed in this house for a few years. Henry does know a little bit about her father, that he was a schizophrenic, but that's probably not it. We learn that it's actually Lucas who killed the Mennonite boy, thinking that he was the one that crippled his brother. Well, if you look at this boy, would he be able to do something to Clay like that? And finally, the two stories are going to get together. So... Nikolai is sent by some organization towards a new disturbance in the force, as Dave called it. So, towards Henry. And we also see that this Nikolai is dependent on some kind of drug, which he has to inject directly in his heart. That is how it looks. But, okay, so a lot of strange things here. We have to find out in next episode's. I get a little bit a season 3 Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. feeling here. With vanishing people and telekinesis people and using drugs to inhibit it, etc. I'm halfway season 3 by the way, so please don't give me a spoiler for further on. All the best for this hundredth time. Greetings. Fred from the Netherlands and Happy New Year because this is recorded on the 28th of December but will be aired in 2020. All right, well, number one, it doesn't surprise me that Dark is the number one Netflix show on on this person's list, but certainly one of the things I've discovered about lists is they're often designed to create feedback from readers. And, And I know from working at Den of Geek, they're just as happy if every comment at the bottom of the story is negative that talks about the writer being an idiot did you even watch the same movie i watched because they don't care because you clicked on their story so right. <laughs> uh I, I looked at some of the other choices on this list and 
uh, they were pretty sketchy. Still, dark is number one. I'm, I'm happy to see and, and certainly not going to argue with that. But I, I love how Fred calls this the play nice episode because we do, as we said, see, see some of these characters in a different light. Again, you know, we were talking about Henry, whether her interactions with Dippy can be construed as altruistic or simply self-serving it's I guess a little of both and and kind of it's that way for most of the characters and especially with the teenagers well they're teenagers so you know just uh, I, I think it's a good designation for this episode as the characters are playing nice but I think when you think about playing nice why do you play nice with somebody you know it's almost like you're jockeying for position you're you're trying to gather information you you generally play nice with somebody because you're leading up to something else you might not know what it is you're leading up to but right i i think there's ulterior motives is abound in in impulse uh especially the the, the conversation between bill and jeremiah um, and then you know Lucas being at his mother's house. I mean, there's and Henry with uh, Dippy and um, you know there, there's all kinds of ulterior motives. Even Jenna and Zach, as we said, like I, I, I don't know if I necessarily would say ulterior motives, but you know she what she does with him, I don't think is 100 percent motivated by uh, attraction to him. Now, the other thing Fred mentioned, some inconsistencies with, with his previous feedback, and all I can say is, Fred, we've all been there. We've all said things that, uh, you know, details that we missed, details that we misconstrued. So the kind of shows yeah. we're talking about, it just comes with the territory, I guess. So, you know, no big deal. The other thing, though, he, he brings up about Iris, you know, what, that she's not a hooker obviously and i don't think we really thought that we just bill seems to be one of those men and i certainly think it could be a woman as well that that thinks money is a way to you know i don't know to to always help somebody and you know sometimes it is clearly but sometimes it's not you know like he's not giving cleo money he's giving her an opportunity so, right. you know, maybe he senses that Iris maybe isn't cut out to work at the dealership that, you know, he's had enough contact. So that's why he hasn't invited her on board. So, right. Well, and you know. Iris, you know, she is obviously embittered and Fred brings up how, um, you know, I mean, with justifiably, if she's working extra shifts because Cleo's not there anymore, well, that would probably piss her off. Uh, but she seems like the comment about how everyone loves the Cinderella story would would show that she's a little bit bitter about Cleo's sudden, you know, upwardly mobile status in the community. Um, but you know, I also thought, well, maybe Iris is seeing something here, like the early days of of her relationship with Bill. She's seeing that repeated, and she is concerned about cleo but also you know maybe annoyed because you're like how can cleo not see what's going on here how can she just walk into this uh with blinders on so yeah well we will see i do believe 
Um, all right. Uh, you believe Fred, we will. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Fred, thank you so much for the feedback. And um, I guess that's a good spot to end this discussion. What do you think? Yeah. I, uh, I think think we've pretty much uh, I don't th- talked I don't it think, out. Yeah. I think we we got it. All right. Well, listen, that's going to do it then for this episode of Sci-Fi TV Rewatch. I want to thank you guys for joining us. Love to hear what you think about Impulse. Uh, Fred brings up Dark in his feedback. Anything else going on in genre TV? Encourage you to join the Facebook group. Get into the discussions there. Emails can go to sci-fi TV rewatch at gmail.com. Voicemails via the SpeakPipe tab, which you can access through the website, or just do what Fred does, record your own clip and send it in to us as an attachment. We'll be back next week to talk about Impulse Season 1, Episode 6, titled In Memoriam. But until then... You know, Dave, one summer I worked, like, at a a farm and, like, actually, like, taking care of horses and stuff. And we were, like, you know, part of it is, like, shoveling out the stalls of the horses and everything like that. It was, like, it's going to be tough work. There's this one guy there who's always trying to duck out of work. And he was always trying to get me to, like, do his job. One day I just said to him, Hey, look, we all got our own shit.